Hi, this is Lenny Pfeffer, President of the Dorchester County Council, welcoming you to the Maryland Association of Counties Conduit Street Podcast, the show that discusses the issues and ideas shaping Maryland policy and politics today. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is Michael Sanderson taking the microphone this week, and I'm really glad to have a special guest with me. If you listen to our podcast often enough, you kind of are in this state and local policy lane, and you know that a good bit of what we talk about here are local government issues. Uh, From a Maryland perspective, we talk about our counties and the services they're delivering and so forth, but obviously we're not alone in flying that flag. Nearly every state has an association like MACO that represents county governments and looks out for their services and their members. And I'm really glad to have my friend and my counterpart from the North Carolina Association of County Commissioners, Kevin Leonard. Kevin, welcome to the pod. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. I really do appreciate the invitation, and it's such a treat to be able to talk to you and share back and forth uh, what Maryland's doing and North Carolina is doing. You're right. There are around 50 of us around the the country doing the same work, and we all get to nerd out a little bit uh, on policy and what makes us unique, different, and the same. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. So thanks so much for for having me. Well, ha- happy to do it. And uh, um, so let's 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 tee things up a little bit. I mean, our listeners here on Conduit Street are. Every once in a while, we do the you know the, the the global survey, and while we do have some people from Madagascar and the Middle East and from South America who listen for whatever reason, um, <laughs> we have a nice little pocket in Guam too. That's yeah. a thing, but oh, really? <laughs> um, okay. but most of our listeners are are folks who are engaged in policy and politics in the state of Maryland. So maybe to give our folks a little little bit of a setting, uh, talk to us a little bit about how many counties you've got in North Carolina. It's more than we've got in, in Maryland, how broad your membership is, and maybe a little bit about like the scope of services that counties in North Carolina provide. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd be happy to to give the listeners a little lay of the land here in North Carolina. But before I do, if I could, and I have to tell your listeners that you did not pay me to say what I'm getting ready to say oh, dear. Uh, at, oh, at all. But um, just so your listeners know what a gem that they have in you and your association. And again, Michael did not pay me to say this, but um, Michael uh, has an extraordinary government relations team. Uh, and, and and runs an, a great uh, association up there in Maryland. And in fact, I try to steal as much as I can from you guys. In fact, my my thinking is that you guys were the very first podcast uh, association to have a, a county podcast. And so we stole that as soon as we could. Uh, and and so we have our own uh, down here as as well. But I just wanted to say. I just wanted to say that because I I've always admired the work that you do, Michael. And, uh, and anyway, well, thank, thank you very much for that. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll be sure to get that out in editing. That's not going to go out. To <laughs> no, no, that needs to be right there. <laughs> that needs to be like the, you know, the teeth uh, for, for, for everything. Okay. So, so basics in North Carolina, and then we can get into some policy stuff if you would like, but just so yeah. folks in Maryland, uh, by the way, how many, how many counties in Maryland? 
So we have we have 24 counties where our anomaly is that includes the city of Baltimore here in Maryland. Baltimore City is treated for like in the law and within our membership as both a municipality, a city, but also as a county government. So they're a standalone full purpose government, just like our large counties. Okay, so 24 members here. Got it. Okay. So um, we have 100 counties in the state of North Carolina, and we say a couple of things. Uh, we say if you've been to one county, well, you've been to one county, uh, <laughs> because they're all they're all different, including probably your yours uh, as as well. Um, we also say that uh, everyone lives in a county uh, in North Carolina. So unlike Virginia, and it sounds like unlike Baltimore right. in your case. Um, the city is not a separate unit of government. This, I mean, it is. It's a separate unit right. of government. However, it's a layered cake in North Carolina, meaning that the you have the state government, then you have uh, the county government, which is statutorily created in North Carolina as an arm of the government to deliver the services of the government. We have some similarities in some of the services that we provide uh, right. Maryland and, and North Carolina, and we can get into that. Uh, but it's not the city sit on top of you know the county. There's a special jurisdiction, which is a city. Right. That means that they don't provide the same services that the county does. The county is responsible for providing all of those services, like building infrastructure for schools, the courthouses, health and human services is something that we do in North Carolina. And so we provide all of those services to all of the residents within that county. And each county has to provide all those different, all of those same services. So Tyrrell County, which is out on the coast. Uh, for North Carolina is is likely one of our smaller counties with a population around four thousand. It fluctuates. Uh, it's it's actually downgrading. They're they're losing population in Tyrrell County. Mm. Um, and then you have Mecklenburg uh, and and Wake County, which is Raleigh and and uh, Charlotte, uh, with populations over a million in each of those those counties. In North Carolina, we have about uh, ten million residents that live here so 10 pe- 10 million people in north north carolina and growing uh every year it's probably closer to 11 at this point so a, a significant amount of population in in north carolina and we've had a lot of people just moving here over the past decade plus and so uh those demands and they're moving into those population centers in what we would call the i85 corridor or crescent from charlotte uh mecklenburg county through Winston-Salem, Greensboro, up in the middle part of the state, over to the Raleigh area. Within then bigger uh, other pockets down on the coast, like Wilmington and New Hanover County, and then Asheville over in in Buncombe County in the western uh, part of the state. Um, So that's the demographics, I suppose, and sort of the lay land in in North Carolina, if if we'll jump over into um, the General Assembly uh, so you can get we, maybe we can bridge over to some policy discussion if yeah, you yeah. like. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, we have a Democrat governor. So uh, Governor Roy Cooper, who is in his second term, second four year term, he is term limited. So he will be uh, moving out of the mansion uh, in the next election cycle. So we'll have an open seat there. Uh, Democrat governor. And then we have a Republican legislature. Uh, we have um, a House and a Senate and they have supermajority Republican uh, mm-hmm. members. Now, I wanted to make sure I told you that because that's going to be interesting uh, in a moment when we talk about the budget. By the way, I don't know if you can hear the train. We have a train that runs outside our, our office here. So pardon me for the, the train noise, but it's no, but yeah. we like it. it's infrastructure. We're all about it. It's good. It's we like it. 
<laughs> so so the, the the political landscape there in some ways is the mirror image of what Maryland had for our previous two terms. We we recently elected a Democratic governor, but for the eight years prior, we had supermajority Democratic control in both chambers of our state legislature, sort of a veto proof, you know, supermajority in both chambers. But we had a Republican governor for two terms, which um, isn't wasn't as big of a deal as it seemed like it could be on paper, but it ended up being a, a I don't know maybe a moderating influence on some policy and some implementation and so forth. I'm sure folks have thought more deeply about that than I have on the partisan front. There aren't a whole lot of things that our county governments do that are deeply partisan. But sometimes when we get you know ensnared in things like a tricky budget or whatnot, if those things are par- partisan and things get gummed up as a result of it then, you know, we're kind of along for the ride. So yeah, same, same here in North Carolina. And, you know, we, we talk here as I'm, I bet most of our counties do across the country and in, in, in Maryland, especially as well, that um, we, we have the benefit of being what I would, what I term the practitioners of government, mm-hmm. uh, or also sometimes I'll say to folks I'm talking to about county government, that we're the front door to democracy. So all of the doors that you walk through at the county level are your first entry in, uh, to, to, for a citizen uh, to interact with government. And a lot of times that doesn't mean that it's political. You're walking into a, a, a precinct that's run by the gov- the county government to vote. You're going into somewhere to pay your, your tax bill. Um, you're going in uh, somewhere to, to get some level of service. Uh, in terms of maybe social services or public health services. It's not mm-hmm. really political, although I would say that it feels more and more like some of the national level politics, which we've seen over the years being pushed down to the state levels, uh, assemblies, it starts, it's starting to filter into some of those, those, uh, those board right. of commissioners uh, meetings. Now that's not uncommon. Politics is everywhere. Um, but I think for the most part, we, we've been shielded, uh, from from that, because we are doing just the daily work of true governmental uh, responsibility, public safety, I, I left out. So yep. it's an important part of that and EMS services and, and those right. types of things. So anyway, right. so that's, I'm, that, I'm that is, on my part. Yeah, that, <laughs> so that that is pretty comparable in a lot of ways to the structure here in Maryland. So a, a couple, couple, I want to get into policy and politics and our legislatures and budgets and so forth. But before we do just a couple of quick, like nuts and bolts here, um, you mentioned, it sounds like your structure, municipal governments are sort of a layer on top of county government. Everybody receive, everybody lives in a county and reserves at least some of their, their frontline services from the county government. But then, some folks here are in incorporated municipalities and they might receive uh, have a local police force rather than a sheriff's department providing primary law enforcement. The municipal government might pick up the trash or might do land use planning and that sort of stuff. That sounds like it's pretty analogous. It is. Here it's a here it's kind of a it's a it's a minority of our residents are actually live in an incorporated city. I, I live I live in Anne Arundel County outside of Annapolis, which is itself an incorporated city. I live in an area that looks and feels like a town, but it doesn't have any municipal government. And all the services here are effectively county level services. Is that a pretty common situation in North Carolina as well? Yeah, that, that sounds analogous to, to what we have here. You know, I live, I grew up in, 
a county called Davidson County, North Carolina, which is a very rural county in the center part of the central part of, of the state in the Piedmont. Mm-hmm. And and what you just described sounds very similar to where I, I grew up, which the majority of the of the land is is county. And so you're you don't have county. Sometimes you'll have county water, um, but you wouldn't have county sewer or anything like that. That's that's rare. It's more septic, you know, based th- mm-hmm. those types of things. Right. Rare, rare is where I live now. And I live in Wake County, a very populous county, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I, ha- I have an address of Apex, which is um, a-, a municipality here. However, I just happen to live in an area that's unincorporated, which <laughs> is very unique. So, so, and I joke about it because it, it helped qualify me for this job. Now, I live in, <laughs> only in the county, um, and our the folks who live in that area, which is a very small, it's just a real small pocket. Um, when I moved in there, there was a big issue about annexation going on and and involuntary annexation. It was a big issue between the cities and the counties here uh, in North Carolina about uh, 10, 15 years ago. And it it was, it was a major issue that they didn't, they did not want to be annexed. And what does that really mean uh, for the people who live there? Well, it's taxes. And so the, if, if you're in that extra jurisdiction of, of a municipality, then that city can charge an additional set of taxes on the resident to do all the services that you just said, water, right. uh, sewer, uh, which they would run lines. Uh, they would uh, do trash pickup, uh, all, all kinds of extra services. Um, and so I think in a growing state like we have here, there's been this natural rub about the the municipalities expanding their boundaries, um, mm. not uh, not voluntarily, and that's what caused a significant. Um, I didn't mean to get into involuntary no. annexation, but with with a growing state or more populous areas of a state, it's really created tension. Uh, and again, that's been about ten plus years ago at this point. And they in the general assembly changed hands uh, republicans took over around 2011 after being controlled by the democrats for you know almost 100 years and so the, the a lot a lot happened in those first couple of years and one of those big things was to tighten down the screws on involuntary annexation so the cities have in north carolina now not a lot of tools in the toolbox in terms of annexation growth and hmm. i think it's causing some challenges now um and uh, in terms of of having cities prosper uh and i'm not advocating for for cities in our county certainly have opinions about annexation i just highlight it because you i think it from what you just said in in maryland y'all might be facing some similar types of issues given growth and the proximity of county and, and city boundaries uh yeah i i think um this this is probably a topic that that we could probably do an entire episode of our own pod on. Um, but municipal annexation here has a different flavor. Sometimes we have sometimes seen. Um, so, so for the most part here, county governments do land use and, and planning and, and, and so forth, zoning and planning. And then within an incorporated municipality, they will sometimes take over that responsibility inside their own borders. And sometimes that means we will have aggressive developers who want to do a big project 
and they've got an idea to turn you know a bunch of cornfields into a bunch of condos. Mm-hmm. And the county might say, listen, we can't approve the permits for that. We don't have the physical space. We don't think we have the water and sewer infrastructure. We don't have the space in our schools. We don't have the infrastructure that we control. So we really can't, we can't bear another 2,400 units in that corner of the county. So we will we'll red light um, approvals on some sort of big development. Then we'll find the private developer will say, well, actually, we're not all that far from an, a, an existing town. Let's see if we can get this area annexed into the town. And the town will say yes, where the county said no. So we've had we've had examples of annexation which have put county governments and their own municipalities sometimes at odds with one another over how it affects growth management. Um, so anyway, yeah, a variation on a theme, uh, yep. but but these intergovernmental local issues, I think they have their own their own chapter in every jurisdiction, and they're they're different one place versus another. But that's that's a an issue that's present with local governments everywhere. I think. I, I agree. And what you just described is very familiar to us yep, in terms yep. of, of not only the the planning aspect, the counties, you know, the planning department and all of all of that. Um, the cities here uh, and, and again, the assembly seems to be more punitive to the cities in this case in terms of growth and the regulations that the cities can place upon builders or private owners and, and things such as that. And uh, anyway, it, it just it it does it causes that level of conflict I think with the city and the assembly, uh, and 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 for the county as well as they're trying to plan for growth and 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 I would say and maybe we can move on to another point, mm-hmm. um, but the infrastructure uh, piece is significantly important, especially right now with the ARPA funds that have come down. And our budget did just pass. I think we were talking about either that before, yeah. maybe alluded to it that, and we can talk about about that. But there's 1.9 billion dollars in our budget that just passed for water and sewer projects, and mm. largely that's going to come to uh, county governments uh, in special projects um, to make the decisions on where to put those projects and where to put those lines. So it, it's this uh, interesting uh, uh, dance uh, between mm-hmm. between the counties and the cities and the state who is funding to 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 where to site those lines, put them in, and of course, as you know, and probably most of your listeners know, where the water lines, sewer lines, broadband lines go, so does economic development follow. Sure. And, sure. uh, and so those are critical decisions that last, you know, a generation. Yeah. And we're just yeah. at that point. Yeah. So I, I, I want to get into the, the sort of the, the politics of, of the state budget, because I think that's fascinating. But while you're talking about this infrastructure investment, so that sounds like a big wave of public dollars coming out for water and sewer. Is, is most of that in the service of getting people who are on well and septic today onto some sort of a public system, whether it's county or municipal run, is that is that the basic idea there to to get get that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think it's twofold actually. I I think there is some of that in in there, but I think the assembly and our county leaders are more focused on on new development. Okay, um, and, and because I think that there's a major, um, you know, uh, focus on on that and like in in 
on economic development, not only not only residential, but business too. And a lot mm-hmm. of business mm-hmm. parks and those types of things, especially out in, in rural uh, North Carolina. Um, I'm sure there is a component of it about getting people uh, on, on, uh, on water, uh, on, you know, uh, municipal, you know, municipal in the sense that it's governmental uh, water systems uh, off of septic, et cetera. But I don't think that's the major driver there. I I could, I could be wrong, but I think that's my, my antenna is telling me that it's more about the economic development of bringing major manufacturing in, in business right. into rural North Carolina. Uh, if, I, if I could, Michael, I want to pivot yeah. a little bit on the broadband. And again, I know. Sure. Yeah, related I'm, issue. Yeah. yeah, I'm not probably taking you off off of where you were trying to track. So I apologize. You can bring me back in. But no, I think I, th- I think this flow is great. Go ahead. Um, so this past year, um, uh, our we, probably like you, you know, we have I have I report to a 50 member board made up of commissioners. And by the way, mm-hmm. our commissioners are, are, you know, they are our leaders in the North Carolina Association, uh, but we represent the entire county. We we mm-hmm. take the position that if it's county related, uh, we're helping out with the county managers, with the county department heads, all, all of it. You know, if if it's a county issue, we're taking care of it. We're looking after it. We're trying to to be the best advocates and and service providers we can to our members. We're led by the, the elected officials. Um. So we have a five-member executive committee. The member is elected uh, to serve as a second vice president, and then they rotate up for about you know, – it takes them four years to reach uh, the president. So right. our president last year, who uh, is now our immediate past president, focused on broadband. There's never been as much money in broadband than there is right now, whether it's through the ARPA Act, the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, or the BEAD, and I can't remember what the acronym for BEAD stand for. You you may remember that, right. I, yeah. But it, it's another governmental program with with the emphasis to put fiber in the ground, right? Um, and we she she was focusing on that because she's from a very rural county called Washington County out in the eastern part of the state that has little to no fiber and connectivity, and it's just been her thing for 16 years. And so she brought brought that to light. So we we spent that entire year last year working on broadband issues. And I think there's a there's roughly about 1.5, almost two billion dollars worth of funds that uh, going into broadband right now. Um, we counties don't have the authorization in the statute to build uh, infrastructure, but we have programs that allow us to have input with the provider networks. So the for-profit providers, telecommunications industry, to help present RFPs with them to basically have them bid on where we want the fiber to go within the county. Again, very analogous to laying down a water line or a sewer line. If you put a fiber line in out in that part of the county that really needs it, uh, and I'm thinking more of our eastern counties or maybe some mm-hmm. of our western counties in the mountains, which it's more expensive, of course, to put fiber in the mountains. But um, with with COVID now, and people can work anywhere. And we have a lot of beautiful rivers and places to go, but they don't have connectivity. And, and I think it's a people are looking at it as this is going to be another major infrastructure driver for the future economy in North Carolina. And I'm guessing in Maryland as well and all across mm-hmm. the, the country. Anyway, sorry to get on, yeah. the, on the broadband soapbox, but it's something that's huge uh, in North Carolina right now. 
Right. Well, I think those issues, I think you're right that these are sort of these conflicts go hand in hand, that that the government can can play the, you know, if, if we're doing bump set spike, spike like a volleyball team, like mm-hmm. sometimes the bump in the set can, can come from the public sector to say, here are the roadways, here's the here's the workforce and we've got an educated workforce and they're ready and so forth. And now we've got here's the water and sewer. Here's the broadband infrastructure. We're going to build it because we think they will come. And these are areas where we want to target growth. We want to support growth. So you put the pipes in the ground, you put the fiber in the ground, and it's going to show up. I mean, folks are going to want to occupy those spaces. We definitely learned that through the time of the pandemic. It sounds like your your pro-broadband president, you know, maybe by happenstance, landed at just the right time when suddenly it became a national priority as everybody realized you know, all these kids doing their homework at Wendy's because they don't have a connection, you know, to be able to do online schooling in 2020. Um, you know, suddenly the priority level of a lot of these projects went up. Feds came up with some dollars, a lot of grant money available, and it's going to show dividends for a really long time. So hats off to your leadership, your association, and we're seeing the same sort of stuff wave after wave here in Maryland, for sure. I, I will, a uh, final point on that yeah. is that um, we've been advocating for well over a decade, and there's a longer story here about the city of Wilson in North Carolina. If your listeners are interested in broadband policy and mm-hmm. just uh, you know how how fun that is, uh, look just Google the city of Wilson, a green light. Um, they were back in like the early the uh, uh, like 2010 uh, ish mm-hmm. era. They decided to start offering their own service as a provider. Right. And the assembly came in again when it switched hands. Um, the industry led a bill called Level the Playing Field that basically outlawed any governmental entity entering into the service provision. Counties, by the way, our position's always been we don't want to provide service, we want to provide infrastructure. Okay, so that is a backdrop. Right. I think there's one more step to this. Uh, and we, so we've been advocating for 10 years that, to build infrastructure. And the we we have not been successful in that because I think the the industry doesn't want uh, the thumb on the scale by the yeah. government to to do to get into that marketplace. Um, but I think there's one one last step here, and and it's when the money runs out, meaning when the ARPA money and the bead money and all the other FCC dollars or uh, the ARDOF monies run out. Um, for the subsidies, you're still going to have pockets in our counties, especially rural counties, who they're not wired. And those are going to be the most expensive places to go. And that, if it's truly a utility, as people are calling it these days, and it's going to set somebody apart at a disadvantage if they do not have connectivity, then people are going to have to really consider strongly that there is a role for government to play local governments in building the infrastructure. Telecommunications industries should really think hard about that stance on their advocacy because saying that government doesn't have a role, well, government's already got a role about, you know, billions and billions of dollars that they're subsidizing the cost on the build. The government's already involved. So I think that's the last step, uh, probably another five, 10 years away when all the those those federal dollars have dried up that we're going to have to really think long and hard about how we authorize local governments, whether it's in Maryland or North Carolina 
or Montana or whomever to, to go ahead and create that last mile, that last pocket. So anyway, I, I'm, yeah, you can tell I'm I'm pretty passionate about the broadband space. Uh, it, it just I've been working on it for so long. So right. sorry, well, I, sorry to go so much on that. No, no, no. I think it's I think it's right on point. And this is the kind of stuff I'm interested in in chatting about. I I, I think like it is. First of all, I think it's an interesting conundrum about whether this should be strictly private sector investment and and build out and capacity or has broadband and high-speed access effectively become a public good where, you know, like, you know, like the utility, the way we think of electric service, the way we think of water and sewer and things like that. I mean, you, you change the mindset when something's considered essentially um, a foundational thing for a proper setting for a home, a family, a business, or whatever. So I think we're, we're, we're on the bubble there where communications some time ago felt really private and it might have been really untoward in the 1980s or 90s for the government to step in and say, we're going to compete head to, head to head against the cable company or something like that. Today, I think a lot of those barriers have come down, practically speaking, and there's a there may be a foundational role that's appropriate for the public sector to come in and say, everybody deserves the benefit of, you know, like, like we put a pipe under the road and we tell everybody you can run the, you know, run your cables through our pipe. You know, we'll provide the conduit to get to all these buildings in downtown Baltimore or in Mecklenburg County or wherever. Right. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, it's an interesting it's an interesting policy question. But you're right. This has moved up everybody's list of priorities lately. And I think rightfully so. so. Yeah. So, OK, so so we've danced around a little bit about some of the political stuff. Um, we're recording in the middle of October. Those of us who are fiscal people, we think of fiscal years starting July 1. And uh, I think North Carolina is no exception that you use a July 1 fiscal year. But mm-hmm. um, am I understanding correctly that basically your state's annual budget is literally just hot off presses, like got passed in the in a manner of the last several days? Is that right? That That is correct. And uh, <laughs> ju- and we do operate on a, uh, a July 1st uh, fiscal year. By the way, our counties will tell you at the drop of a hat that they are required by law to pass their budget um, by July the 1st, which they right. all do. All 100 counties sure. <laughs> pass their budget by July the 1st. And so, um, and then if you might recall in the description earlier, we have a general assembly that is made up of two supermajority chambers. And right. so that might make you want to scratch your head. Well, wait a minute. Yeah. If you've got two supermajority <laughs> chambers, what's been the holdup on the budget? That's odd. Um, let me take you back to 2016, Michael. Okay, um, I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know who, who was on television in 2016, but uh, beside the point, there was a law passed in our General Assembly um, that basically did this. It uh, took away the need for a CR or a continuing resolution. Um, And I don't know, maybe you can tell me uh, if they have a similar uh, provision in Maryland, but what that effectively did was it took all the pressure off of passing a budget on time. And and I've been, I've been working at the general assembly um, since 99 
Um, uh, I moved back to, I'm from North Carolina. I went to DC for about five years and then I moved back in 99, started working at the general assembly. And so every year there was this, you know, when they didn't pass a budget, they would have to pass a CR just like they would do in Congress. And, and, and it would be a, it would be a game. It would be a little bit like, we're going to pass a, a, you know, a 15 day CR or 30 day CR. And then, you know, everybody would go home. If it was a 30 day CR, they go home for 25 days and they would come back uh, for the last five and the pressure built up again. And then they would pa- they'd pass another CR. Well, that 2016 piece of legislation that passed relatively unnoticed, by the way, um, just kind of got slipped in that said uh, they would if a budget didn't pass, it would just continue spending at its current levels for the fiscal year. And so it took that pressure off of the General Assembly. Uh, to wow. have to how have to create a budget. I right. hope I'm not sharing news I shouldn't share because maybe folks in Maryland, if they don't have this already, they maybe they won't. I hope they don't adopt it. No, <laughs> we are we are fortunate here. Um, we rarely have any of this kind of budget drama. Uh, in in my many years of covering fiscal affairs in Maryland, we had one year where big components of the budget plan didn't pass on time in during the April session. Mm-hmm. And then we had to do some, you know, come back to do a couple days worth of work to have everything smoothed out for the July budget. But we've we've never gone past July or anything even really close to that. So, but I, but it is interesting though that I'm sure it was a well-intentioned idea rather than rather than you know overstuff the hand. Like we see this in Congress, right? The inability to have a continuing resolution to just keep the doors open leaves the federal government shutting down for a couple weeks here every few years. Because they just can't broker a deal, it seems like not a terrible idea that if you can't work it out, we'll just continue at, at the same funding level. That sounds like a you know an automatic fallback, so you don't have the worst happen. But mm-hmm. then it maybe became too comfortable. Right? It 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 could. Have, it's been the norm, I would say, for the past several yeah. years that our budget has been delayed. Um, and again, you could argue it both ways that it's a good provision or. It's, you know, taking that pressure off of getting getting it done. What I my observation is that what it has inadvertently done is that it's also incentivized the inclusion of policy related matters into the budget. And Mm. that's um, I mean, of course, that's not uncommon, you know, in, in any state or or in the country to put some pretty major policy provisions in the budget especially in the dynamic of getting you know the governor to sign it. We had super majorities I think two cycles ago and then we the, the Republicans lost their um super majorities so there had to be some gamesmanship in terms of putting some things in the budget to force the governor to either veto or or sign it. Uh now with these two super majorities which by the way it just occurred to me to tell you the story about how we ended up with a supermajority in the House because it was one vote shy and a Democrat switched their registration. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I forgot to tell you that piece. So we can we can come back to that piece of the story in, in a little bit. But but to finish the the line on the budget, over the past several years, like last year. In my, I have, I don't know what last year was. It might have been two years ago at this point. I can't remember. It all runs together. But a couple of cycles ago, a couple of years ago, uh, it it was delayed until November. 
until the budget passed. And uh, and the big hang up there was Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. And, and and so they, they went back and and uh, and 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 forth on, on that. They finally passed it uh, in, in November this year. Oddly, uh, the hang up was uh, and I'll get to Medicaid expansion, which it, it ended up passing, but it was related to casinos and the authorization of casinos in the budget the uh, the senate felt very strongly that they wanted to authorize what what are termed entertainment districts which would allow casinos to operate um in north carolina which we only have one now and it's at the cherokee indian reservation in the far western part of the state right. and uh there was an, another one coming online at the catawba uh indian uh, a, um, a reservation down in Cleveland County, uh, and and then th- there are these others because there's Danville, Virginia. Apparently, there's a, a casino at Danville, Virginia, right across the line in North Carolina, and the 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 position is that their North Carolina is losing money by allowing you know their citizens or the residents are going over the line. So this went on for a long time. A long time, uh, like months, and back and forth and back and forth, and finally, uh, the House could not get the enough votes to pass a budget with the casino provisions in it, and they mm. they, they just were like, "We can't do it. We cannot do it," and um, and so it ended up it ended up not passing, and it 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 caused a significant amount of delay, and angst and friction between the two chambers because it was a Senate and a house issue and not a governor issue. Um, so, so that was the, the right. thing that held the a $30 billion budget up in, in North Carolina. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, okay. We end up with some interesting travails to get to the annual budget. Now, one, one way that um, North Carolina and Maryland are similar and we are outliers uh, in contrast to most of the rest of the country, is that our county governments have a big role in funding education. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure education funding is it represents a, a sizable chunk of that $30 billion budget. Um, were there any like policy implement like it, policy implications for education or for like teacher salaries or pensions or other things like that as a result of this budget impasse and back and forth? Any the yes. folks in education feel that yeah, they sure did. You know, the the teachers are going back to school in September, um, and from the summer break, and uh, they are going back to school without a knowledge of what their salary increases would be or are. Uh, the there was a proposed like seven percent increase uh, in year one and a, a, another additional. Right. I can't remember what it was in in year two, but that was all on hold. Um, it's worth noting in North Carolina. Back during the Great Depression in the 30s, uh, we had several uh, counties like we like others in the country go bankrupt cities, et cetera. There was major mm-hmm. reforms in North Carolina. Uh, part of those reforms for North Carolina included basically a new divvying up of responsibilities between the state and the counties. And generally speaking, counties ended up with more of the infrastructure components Uh as I mentioned earlier, building schools, building courthouses, building jails, all of those types of type of, of big infrastructure projects, while the state took on the responsibility for operations. So state in the state government in North Carolina is responsible for teacher salaries. 
Um, we we also have counties that pay supplements, though. Uh, as soon as the ink was dry back in the 1930s on the separation or divvying up of responsibilities, <laughs> counties then started paying the teachers supplements or paying more, you know, on operations because they wanted the they wanted to better their school systems. A natural thing to do for people right. in their communities. Right. Um, but largely speaking, we are looking at the state budget from the county perspective on the capital side of things uh, because the 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 North Carolina state government has helped counties build schools, supplement their funding uh, through capital. And in 2005, they passed a lottery. That was the first year we had a lottery. And it was promised that we were supposed to be getting uh, 40% 40 of all of those proceeds go into capital funding. We had a recession around Mm -hmm. 2008. And guess what happened? They started to take those monies and, and use it to fill a deficit hole. So we we ended up uh, around 2010 having about 17% of those dollars going to capital. So it's taken us almost a decade now to get back up to the original 40%, and we've now surpassed it. And um, and so we are we're back at funding levels from the state and capital. So that's the things that we're paying closer attention to uh, when it comes to educational funding. Okay. I, I'm curious, Michael, in in Maryland, how because we're paying a heavy attention, significant attention to the charter yeah. schools and, and charter schools are a big issue here. They just passed for the first time that we may provide capital funding to charter schools, which I think is going to be a real challenge to, to figure out, but how are y'all dealing with charter schools in, in Maryland? Yeah, I think, um, okay. So charter schools here are differently situated than in most of the Southern states. So I think this is another sort of partisan political difference here. We have a fair number of public charter schools and we have a lot of private schools that are for the most part outside of the public sphere. We've got a, we've got some scholarship programs that, that help some people get into, get into private schools, but it's on a much smaller scale than that I've read about in, in North Carolina and some other places. Um, so I think you know with a with a super majority democratic state legislature, we haven't seen a really big foothold for a lot of the I don't know this philosophy of like the money should follow the student. Like I, Arizona and a few other states have have gone sort of whole hog on this idea of let's take public funds and just attach them to the school age student independent of whether she's going to be in this public school or in that private school or that religious school or whatever, let's just have the dollars follow her. Um, some places are are moving in that direction. Maryland is pretty far behind in that regard. It's just not, it doesn't have a lot of support here politically. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a similar case in North Carolina. There's a per pupil allotment and it follows the, the student to where they're they're going. And that's gotcha. been the traditional case in North Carolina. Um, and, but we've seen a massive, um, well, that's, that might be overstating it. There have been, and there's been an increase in charter schools. The policy has allowed for the increase of charter school creation. And so if more people are leaving what is termed traditional public school, because in North Carolina, charter school is a public school. It's just un- operated under different okay. regulations. So, but Got if it. it follows the child 
um, to the charter school, then that's a dollar out of the, what, again, I'm doing air quotes. You can't see it, but air quotes of the traditional public (laughs) school. And, um, and so there is this great debate on school policy as it relates to operational, not so much the building of the buildings that we we're looking at, but it's filtering down to school boards and county commissioners about, about these issues of like, are you, are you basically taking a, you know, the, the core, um, strengths out of what is termed traditional public school it's it's an interesting policy debate um in north carolina right now and i'm sure that we're not alone in other places about it yep anyway yeah, I, think, I went, probably went too long on that sorry no i think no it's it's interesting i mean education policy will get folks all fired up and we are among the few of our peers like you know, when we when we meet with our peers from across the country we're not talking about education policy very much because most county governments don't have a role in it. It's school districts with their own taxing authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be a countywide school system, but it's not it's not the central player. Um, here in Maryland, like the school budget comes right through the county government, gets gets finalized by the county governing body, and half of the money in typical county budget goes right to K through twelve education. So we are not even hip deep. We're like neck deep in at, at the very least financing education. Now, we're not we're not in charge of curriculum and that kind of stuff. That we have elected school boards who manage those sorts of things and the superintendents and whatnot. But uh, so we're more vested in education policy here than most places. We've had a lot of those similar, you know, debates and back and forth. So all right, let let me tee up a few things as like rapid fire. I want to hear if these issues are are sort of bubbling up or on fire in North Carolina in, in similar ways that they are here in Maryland. Um, I don't know how central the county governments are in, in North Carolina for land use and planning and zoning and so forth, but are you all facing affordable housing difficulties in a way that we are here? It's a major issue um, yeah. everywhere, Michael. It's, it's yeah. really interesting over the past four years, I would say. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, with the pandemic and results of the pandemic, perhaps, but mm-hmm. it's probably been building for a while. Um, and I know that the National Association has been working on some of this. And in fact, I'll, right. I'll quote our um, executive director at the national level, Matt Chase, who helped me, I think, change my the way I talk about this. And that is, um, how does he phrase it? I think it's uh, housing affordability. Um, because where we're, we're seeing, uh, our members talk about, uh, housing issues. It has a lot to do with workforce housing. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's not where you think it, it would traditionally be in your more urban centers or, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's not the traditional, uh, affordable housing issue, um, for instance, anecdotally, uh, I had there's a YMCA close to where I live, and you know I'm close to with with some of the right. senior leadership there, and they've talked to me about like in just in our area that they have people who the people that work there they're having struggles keeping them uh, close because they they can't find apartment housing or rental housing or houses in general to purchase. Right. Because the wage uh, isn't keeping up with the cost of the housing, and that's just pure workforce issues. And and it's just that's just an anecdotal story for me. But you insert anything into it, it's not only the why; it's a small business. It's 
it's even local government employers, county governments um, are having struggles with that. And they're having to move into another county to afford to live. And so it's just interesting. And more and more counties uh, are asking to become involved in housing issues, which I don't know about for you, but in North Carolina, that is highly unusual. It's not a county level function that we've traditionally uh, done. Uh, and more and more counties are asking for authority and funding sources to to get involved in that. Durham County is, I think, the first county that really, yep. you know, I heard from that's uh, Durham's in the is, is close to here to Wake County in the Triangle, um, a, a fairly populous uh, county. They were the first ones that I really went, huh? When they were saying, we want to do a housing project. And I was like, you want to probably be careful with that. And and now I think more. it's not only the big counties, it's the small and the rural ones as, as well. What's happening in right. Maryland? Is it similar? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's similar and it is, it is everywhere. And this issue as a priority for local leaders has been like that hockey stick chart, right? It's, you know, we've had for years and years, it's been, there, there have been problems in certain pockets of our state where force uh, accessible housing, you know, being able to have your teachers and your public safety employees live in the county they serve is a desirable outcome, but it would be hard in this place and hard in that place. I think there's just so many things working against us here. Um, you know, some some of it is like local permitting and so forth, and sometimes we get a black eye over it, but, you know, some of this is just interest rate shocks with interest rates higher now than they have been for a pretty extended period of time that alters affordability in the short term really dramatically um we're also seeing another thing and i wonder if this is something you're experiencing we're seeing lots of properties that ordinarily would be owner occupied either being built for the purpose of being a short term or being converted out of permanent owners and into short-term rentals. We're seeing a lot of properties just sit as Airbnbs or VRBOs instead of as, you know, a, a two-unit apartment you know, for, for residents in the neighborhood. It turns into, this is more lucrative. We can, we can rent it out four nights a week because, you know, people want to be here for one reason or another. We're seeing a bunch of that too. Are you? Yeah, um, I, I've heard more about that in the past several years, and it's primarily in in some of our yeah, I think of our touristy areas, mountain right. mountain counties where people go. Like right now is peak leaf season, so people are heading out there, yeah, and then yeah, down yeah. on the coast, so your vacation centers and that that sort of thing, and and so I am hearing and seeing more of of that. I I've had several county managers and some commissioners who are trying to uh, wrestle with that problem, you might find this of interest that they were trying to figure out whether it could fall because they're they're just trying to track them because there's not a good database uh, to track where these these folks are. Uh, And so trying to have influence in the general assembly has been uh, a bit challenging in trying to create that database, how to track them. And so you can then properly tax them as a, a rental facility versus a property, et cetera. Um, and so some of our counties have have taken the thought, and success rate's been hit or miss here, um, 